Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The United States severed diplomatic relations with Cuba in 1961, three years after the revolution that had toppled the Batista regime. And that policy continued for over half a century through the tenure of 10 American presidents and the 50-year rule of Fidel Castro. Questions about Cuba's future and its relationship with the United States have followed Fidel's death in 2016 and the recent retirement of his brother and successor, Raul. In her latest book, Cuba, an American History, award-winning historian Ada Ferrer relates the five-century story of the island's conquest and colonization, of slavery and freedom, of independence and revolutions, and its relationship with the United States. Ada Ferrer is... Julia Silva, Professor of History and Latin American and Caribbean History at New York University. The book is published by Scribner, and it brings Professor Ferrer to our show now. Welcome. Hi, Leonard. Thanks for having me. Uh, I was going to say Ada because I would have thought, but everybody says your name is Ada, so... <laughs> Actually, I use I use both. Okay. Uh, all my life, I've used both. So, um, Ada in Spanish, Ada in mm. English, Adita, all of them. <laughs> Although, as the subtitle of your book suggests, Cuba and the United States have a shared history, I suspect that much of what you've written here will be new to most Americans. I think it will be. Um, Americans in general do not know that much about Cuban history. And when they think about Cuba, they think about Fidel Castro. They think about very recent history, and they don't realize that the connections between the two countries go back even before the American Revolution. Hmm. What about your students at NYU? <laughs> Are they surprised? They're surprised, yeah. They, 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 I, actually, I teach a history of Cuba class. Uh, that was one of the things that first gave me the idea of doing this book. And and yeah, they, they learn a lot. They they learn a lot, not just about Cuba, but also about the United States, because the U.S. has played a major role in Cuban history. And, um, you know, I think of that class and of, and of the book, one of my major objectives in writing it was not just to tell the history of Cuba, but in the process to give American readers a new insight into the U.S. itself. Didn't a number of 19th century U.S. presidents hope to incorporate Cuba into the United States and some southern states even sent armed expeditions into Cuba? Yep, absolutely. So it began even even before that. Uh, Thomas Jefferson always imagined that, you know, he, he, at one point um, he said the, the, the ideal map of the new republic would include Canada to the north and Cuba on the south. Hmm. He imagined Cuba as the ultimate boundary of, of, of the United States. And he said, if we achieve that, we will have achieved an empire for liberty such as has never been seen before. The truth, of course, is that that empire for liberty was also all about, was, was really all about slavery. So a lot of the 19th century attempts to acquire Cuba for the United States had to do with the institution of slavery, with a plantation economy, with the sli- with an illegal slave trade, and so on. So, so yes. Well, Cuba has been a colony of Spain and and uh, Britain as well. Can mm-hmm. we can we say it's ever been a colony of the United States in some ways? You know, yes. And even the Americans said that. Um, so it wasn't, you know, technically a, a colony, but um, 
the, the U.S. tried, as, as you mentioned, tried to acquire it multiple times in the 19th century by purchase, by, by invasion. Uh, those were ostensibly independent invasions. They were called filibustering expeditions that were going to arrive in the, on the island, liberate it from Spain, and then immediately work with Cubans to annex it to the United States. But it really, the, the colonial relationship really took off at the end of the 19th century. And that is, you know, Cubans had been fighting and mobilizing for independence from Spain for 30 years, beginning in 1868. At the end of the final war of independence, uh, which was 1895 to 1898, the U.S. intervened. Uh, Americans know that episode as the Spanish-American War, but it's really just the tail end of a much longer Cuban struggle for independence. Anyway, they intervened. They set up a military government of occupation, which lasted until 1902. And they only left, and this is very explicit in all the in the, the records of, of the American military governor and records of the president, the State Department, uh, Congress, and so on, the Americans agreed to leave Cuba only if the Cubans agreed to accept something called the Platt Amendment hmm. into their constitution. And the Platt Amendment gave the U.S. the right of intervention in Cuba, among other things. It gave it Guantanamo also, Guantanamo, uh, for, the, for the naval base. And when that happened— But you say America that the Platt Amendment was based on an incorrect reading of history. Well, yes, in many, in many ways. You know, when the U.S. intervened in 1898— it issued something called the Teller Amendment, which said, we are intervening for the independence of Cuba. We will not, we recognize that Cuban sovereignty lies with the Cuban people. We have no intention, no intention of keeping Cuba, in other words, was the premise by which the U.S. intervened in the war in 1898. But once the occupation started, the Americans kept changing their goalpost. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just achieving independence, it was, um, it wasn't just pacifying the island it, so that they could leave, you know, everything in order. It, it eventually became the goalpost became that Cubans had to prove their um, their capacity for for self-government. Only acceptance of the Platt Amendment would uh, would show that. And you have all these, you know, including Orville Platt, who was the senator after whom the amendment was named, said we said basically the U.S. had achieved independence for Cuba and therefore the U.S. had the right to demand things, including the Platt Amendment. That is a fundamental misreading of history because the U.S. intervened, but it's not really fair to say that it had, had achieved Cuban independence. Cubans had been struggling for it for 30 years. Uh, they were on the verge of victory when the U.S. intervened. So it is based in part on a misreading of history. And was there much resentment as uh, as a result of the Platt Amendment? Yes, absolutely. And I was I was about to say, even the U.S. military governor in Cuba at the time, Leonard Wood, said when the Platt Amendment was passed, he said there is no real or effective independence in Cuba w under the Platt Amendment. So even the Americans recognized it that it was a limited sovereignty which Cuba had achieved. And yes, Amer Cubans resented it um, deeply. They they. They mobilized against it. They marched against it. They they tried resisting it initially, right? So when the the Cuban Constitutional Convention was meeting, they 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 rejected it. They voted against it multiple times. But ultimately, they realized that the Americans would not leave unless they accepted it.
No, we often say Columbus discovered America in 1492, mm -hmm. but actually, didn't he make landfall in Cuba? Yes, he made landfall in many places, uh, none of which are continental of, U.S. Absolutely, none of which are the continental U.S. Right, so he landed in the in the Bahamas, in Cuba, in uh, Haiti, Dominican, you know, Hispaniola, which is now Haiti mm -hmm. in the Dominican Republic, uh, Jamaica, so, and so forth. But never, never anywhere in what became uh, the United States. How much do we know about the Tainos, the indigenous people of Baracoa, as, as they called their island? Yeah, Baracoa is the 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 settlement all the way to the east of the island, you know, facing the Woodward Passage, facing facing Haiti. We don't know as much as we want to know. Obviously, it's um, it's it's difficult. But there's there's more and more work being in, uh, done on them. There is a rich archaeological tradition on them. There are, um, in addition to archaeological evidence, scholars also use evidence from the Spanish themselves, which of course has to be read. Um, you know, read with a grain of salt and read, you know, outside in kind of to uh, to, to know about them. But there and there's there's tremendous debate about the number of people who were on the island when when Columbus arrived. But I don't know. We know we know they had settled villages and agriculture. We know that they had hierarchically organized societies. They had a belief system and a religious system. And it is amazing how much of Taino culture has persisted. Um, so all these, I, I have a, someone I know who's, um, well, there's, there's dictionaries of Taino vocabulary and hmm. all these words that are just part of our language, not just in Spanish, but even in English have Taino origins. So like, words- Such as? Hurricane. Really? Oh. Yeah. So that's, you know, obviously uh, Caribbean, the Caribbean had a lot more experience with hurricanes than Europe. So uh, so local people had a word for them, which was which sounded I mean, I would say it in Spanish as huracan. They might have said it differently. And of course, that became hurricane. Um, there are you know, there are others as well, which I'm now blanking on. But uh, I have a few of them in the book that I talk about. And that's one of them. Well, Columbus was sailed for Spain. So is mm -hmm. that what led the Spaniards, led by Diego de, de Velazquez, to, uh, to colonize Cuba? Yes. You know, the first permanent settlement wasn't in, in Cuba. It was in Hispaniola in what is today Haiti and the D Dominican Republic. But, you know, the it was a brutal Which is half enterprise. French-speaking and, French and half Spanish-speaking. Right. It would become half French. Yeah. Initially, it was all Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, before before that, obviously, it was all Taino. But um, it's a, Wait, I, I just yeah. want to stop for a second, because we, we call the culture Afro-Cuban in many cases. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll get to the reasons for that. But should we be calling it Afro-Taino-Cuban? Because Cuban represents really uh, is the Spanish part of that culture, right? I mean, I think we could. Um, I. I mean, how much is Taino still there? You said that some words remain, but words remain. People use them without realizing they're Taino words. Um, you know, 
hammock, the word for hammock in Spanish, or the, you know, there's systems of their agriculture survived uh, until the 19th century. Um, you know, other things like that. The pop, some population survived. Uh, the vast majority uh, died as a result of the of the conquest. They didn't disappear entirely. They um, adapted, and m many of them tried to hide in the in the mountains and places where the Spanish didn't reach. So, so they did survive. Uh, there's a, a Cuban scientist who studies, you know, DNA, and she has found that. Uh, an enormous proportion of Cuban women have um, mitochondrial DNA that is indigenous. Really? And I am blanking right now. I, if I, I might be able to look it up really quickly and give you the exact percentage. But um, Which would include you as a, a Cuban-born woman? No, mine is African. Ah, Okay. So most Cuban women have mitochondrial DNA that is either um, indigenous or, or a very high proportion, indigenous or African. Okay, well, while you're looking that up, uh, I'm wondering what it is about Cuba's geographic location that attracted so many colonizers. Uh, Cuba, um, you know, geography is destiny sometimes. It, it's, it's in a it's in a privileged location. It's at the intersection. It's or intersection might not be quite the right word for what bodies of water do, but it's basically at a crossroads at the meeting point of of three very important um, bodies of water. So the Atlantic Ocean, the Caribbean Sea, and the Gulf of Mexico. One of the things that made Cuba so important from the very beginning was that, and they discovered this, um, Spanish explorers discovered this at the beginning of the 16th century, Cuba lies, Havana actually, Havana lies at the place where the Gulf Stream kind of gathers, right? So mm -hmm. ships could go from Havana and just follow the Gulf Stream up you know, through the Bahamas, up along the coast uh, of the of North America, and then out into the Atlantic Ocean. You could follow the current itself back to Spain, and that made wow. it the ideal point from which you know the treasure the treasure fleets would make the journeys back to back to Spain, loaded with silver and gold, not from Cuba but from Mexico, Peru, and and other places. So. Uh, the king made the made Havana the obligatory stopping point for all those treasure fleets, and they would gather in Havana, they, and then they would cross the Atlantic together, following that that Gulf Stream. Well, so it made Havana very coveted because it, it had a great geographical location, also because it was where the place where all the silver and gold came from. It always had the storehouse of treasure. Hmm. Well, it's a large island, and yeah. and uh, it. It's close to all the smaller islands of the Caribbean. It's close to Florida at the same time, not that far from right. Mexico as well. So right. uh, my guest is Ada Ferrer. Her latest book is Cuba and American History, and it is published by Scribner's. 
Uh, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You were talking about Havana. What was the city of Havana like at the time of the British siege in, in 1762? It was it was the place that every European monarch wanted for him or herself. So there was already it was already receiving the gold and silver from Mexico. So it had it was associated with free flowing silver currency. And we don't think you know this is surprising to most people, but the most uh, the most valued currency at the time was this was the Spanish silver. Um, they called them pieces of eight. And Havana was said to be just, you know, flowing with them. So, so it was a, a, a rich place that that people wanted uh, for that, for its location. It was starting to develop a modest sugar industry. It already had um, a tobacco industry, but it was a uh, it was a place that England and 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 France and and other other European colonies thought could be very valuable. And and Spain uh, had lost its power there? It was becoming weaker. Hmm. So um, it hadn't lost it entirely. And it tried, it was, it, it, in some sense, the, the, the attack of the British on Havana. And the British won and occupied Havana and ruled it as part of the same British empire as the, as the 13 colonies of North America. Uh, after that happened, and after Spain got Havana back in the treaty, um, Spain tried to institute reforms to strengthen its hold hmm. on not just on Cuba, but on all its colonies. But event, just a few decades, well, about five decades later, most of Latin America would become independent, but not Cuba and not Puerto Rico. Did the, the United States help Cuba expel the Spanish? Um, it likes to think so. Yes. So, <laughs> so I mean, that's that's what um, that's tr- kind of what I was trying to get at with the the discussion of the Spanish American War. You know, this, the, the Cubans have been fighting for independence since 1868. They had this incredible uh, multiracial army that was breaking all kinds of barriers. Uh, many of the leaders were men of color. The most famous being a man named Antonio Maceo who became a kind of hero for African-Americans here in the United States, who began to name their sons after him. Um, but rather than say Maceo, they named them Maceo, but they were definitely naming them after him. So that was all going on. And the U.S. intervened at, at the end of that process. The leaders of the Cuban independence war, for the first time, were predicting victory before the end of 1898. And then at the beginning of that year, the USS Maine exploded in Havana Harbor. The Americans blamed Spain and declared war on Spain. So forever after that, the Americans, and this was definitely true at the beginning of the revolution, Americans would talk about Cuban independence as something they had helped achieve, as something that was an American gift almost to the Cubans. And they should be grateful. Exactly. And so what they expected is is gratitude. And and Cubans resisted that. So uh, Cuban intellectuals, Cuban lawyers, Cuban students, even mainstream Cuban politicians who were not you would not call particularly radical in the least, um, uh, resented it and, and used that sentiment also in their politics. 
When Barack Obama met Raul Castro in an attempt to reforge friendship, didn't he say that, I'm, I'm quoting, like the United States, the Cuban people can trace their heritage both to slaves and slave owners? Yes. Yes, it was a... Did Raul appreciate that? <laughs> I don't, you know, um, it's so interesting. I was there when, when Barack Obama was there, and I listened to the speech with um, some of my Cuban family in their, in their living room. And I remember when Obama started to say that sentence, I remember thinking, is he going to say what I think he's going to say? And he did. And it was remarkable, I think, because, well, for many reasons, but... In general, Cuban political discourse, not just now, but since, you know, for the whole period of post-independence, has rarely talked about race in such a, you know, in, in such a prominent, prominent way. So, you know, so race comes up sometimes. So, for example, when Cuba participated in um, in in Angola's struggle for independence and the civil war that followed. And uh, during that period, Raul and Fidel Castro would talk about Cuba as an African nation uh, or as a Latin African nation was what they called it to kind of help frame and, and justify and, and explain the intervention. But in general, and when they're talking about Cuba itself as Cuba, there's, there's not a lot of discussion of race and politics. Although it's interesting so. that Afro-Cuban music, which is a mix of West African and Spanish traditions, has been very popular throughout the world since the 19th century. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what, what ha you know, I've been working on Cuba for a long time. So my, my I was born there in 1962, and then this I started traveling back. This is your third well, book about Cuba. This is my it? third book about Cuba, yeah. yeah. So I began going there for research and, you know, and also to get to know the island and visit family in 1990. So it's been over 30 years that, that I've been going there. And when I first went, I went to do dissertation research for my first book, which was on the Cuban Wars of Independence. And I wanted to study the participation of enslaved people and formerly enslaved people. And so I remember going to the Cuban National Archives for the first time, and they asked me, what, what are you here to work on? And I said, um, the, the participation of, of slaves and free people of color and blacks in the independence process. And they didn't like that idea. They, they would say things like, well, but by then, uh, race didn't matter. All Cubans were just Cubans. Or you should look at it from a class perspective, not a race perspective. And uh, you shouldn't use the word Afro-Cuban. They, they would say all these things like that. And one scholar said to me, um, Afro-Cuban is used to describe culture, but not history or politics. So there's a way in which the looking at the cultural realm was always possible. It's It's telling the history of the nation and the, the political history of the nation in a way that centers race that makes Cubans much less comfortable. Or I should say some Cubans or the mm -hmm. you know Cuban powers that be much less comfortable. Was slavery brought to Cuba around the same time as it was brought to the United States? Well, it was brought earlier because it was settled so much earlier. So there was slavery in Cuba from the from the very beginning. Um, 
so it was it was you know it originated uh, before it did in the United States. The thing that overlaps, though, in the history of slavery of, in both countries, is the that Cuban slavery really took off at the same time that abolitionism was already on the rise. So Cuban slavery takes off after the Haitian Revolution of 1791. And it just keeps growing and growing throughout the, the 19th century. So, and if you think about plantation slavery in the US, right? It's, there's a point after the slave trade becomes illegal in 1808 in the US, where um, the, you know, there's the, the, in, the internal slave trade from the northern southern states like Virginia, Maryland, and so on, down to the deep south, where you get you know, a cotton economy and a sugar economy in Louisiana. So there's the, the, the large scale modern plantations of, of, that we think of sometimes when we think about the history of slavery. Those are roughly from the same time in Cuba and the US. It's a 19th century phenomenon. And I think that's partly what explains U.S. interest in Cuba throughout the 19th century. But did slave ships that could no longer come to the U.S. just go to Cuba instead? Many of them did. And to, well, to Brazil. Brazil was also, Brazil mm. had many more Africans arrive than any other place on earth uh, via the slave trade. Uh, but yes, there was a, there was a, a, a very uh, a booming slave trade to Cuba in which Americans were very involved. And there's a, a, a not to plug another book, but a, a recent book by John Harris called The Last Slave Ships, which looks at the role of New York City in in the illegal slave trade. We discussed, right it, on, the, we discussed it on the show. Oh, well, there you go. So as you know, there, you know, right up until the Civil War, you had New York uh, New York City, which I hear in the we background. We are culpable, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, um, you know, centrally involved in the illegal slave trade to the U.S. Not just New York City, Baltimore. A lot of the ships were built in Baltimore. Um, yes. How and when was slavery abolished in, in Cuba? And, and how, what percentage of Cuba's population can trace its roots to slavery? Or you say, well, that's something that they don't really want to concern themselves with? Well, yeah, I, you know, the Cuban censuses at times have recorded um, race and, and at times not. I think the latest census has about maybe 40 percent of the population self-identifying as African descended. Uh, maybe a little less than that. So I think the proportion is actually of people who can actually trace their origins back to slavery is probably higher than that, but many people don't, don't realize it. Um, so slavery did not end in Cuba until 1886. Wow. It was this, yeah. So way after late, the American Civil War. Way after the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. And it was the second... Um, the last place to abolish slavery in the hemisphere was Brazil two years later in 1888. So, so you know, Cuba hung on to that institution. It ended, it ended in, I think, a fascinating way. It was part, it, it was completely embroiled in the history of Cuban independence. So the first war of independence, which began in 1868, the leaders immediately liberated not all slaves, but uh, initially their own, uh, the, the people they themselves held in slavery, then then people in rebel territory, et cetera. So that, that 
that accelerated the process of, of emancipation. Enslaved people themselves took advantage of that, of, of that and began joining the movement for independence. And so it was this, it was multiple things at once. It was the, the independence movement. It was enslaved people themselves and their initiatives, their joining of the movement. They're using legal, um, using laws and, and, and loopholes to, to petition for their own freedom. And then it was finally, Span, you know, Spain realizing that they, they, had, to, they had to end it. It was, um, the rebels were ending it. So they felt like they had to end it. So they, they ended it through gradually beginning in 1870 and ultimately ending in, in 1886. But, but so, is, skin, yeah. is skin color an issue? Because it's my sense that pretty much all of the Cuban leaders that I can remember during my lifetime were rather light-skinned, looking yeah. more European. The Castro, uh, you don't sense that he had uh, any uh, slave roots. Right, right. Now, skin color is definitely an issue. Before, I mean, before Castro, Batista is is often identified as mixed race, and uh, the term mulatto is sometimes used to describe him. Uh, but not, you know, not uh, not a black leader. And yeah, skin color and colorism, I should say, still is a is a major uh, a major factor in Cuban society. And it, I mean, I, I can I can give you many examples over many different time periods. So I'm not quite sure, you know, where to begin. But um, in there's a really interesting figure who I talk about in I believe it's chapter 20, which is on the Cuban Constitution of 1940, and um, it was an amazing moment in the history of the republic in which the whole society was mobilized and supporting the writing, the drafting of a new constitution that did not include the Platt Amendment for the first time. Mm -hmm. So many saw it as the foundational, the real constitution. And one of the most interesting discussions to take place was about an anti-discrimination measure, right? They said uh, the, the, these delegates, and one in particular, uh, Salvador Garcia Agüero, who was a black communist school teacher or educator, I should say, an intellectual, said, um, "We need we need not just to declare everyone equal because that 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 is a lyrical fiction. It can't that doesn't make it true. We actually need to criminalize discrimination." And anyway, you got it. And he talked also about colorism, how it's not just about race, but it's about lightness and darkness of skin. So there is a long tradition in Cuban history and political history, but and in cultural production that focuses on this question of color. And, you know, and even even today you see it. You see it. Um, you can see you can see you can definitely see it clearly. There's um there's more private businesses allowed in Cuba, you know, after some reforms by Raul Castro, still very limited, but it has meant that um, you can see ads in certain places and certain online sites for, you know, small business. This was before COVID and before, before the deep economic crisis right at this moment. But, you know, say a, a few years ago, you, you would see ads where people were trying to hire waitresses or greeters or, ho you know, and, and they would sometimes make explicit reference to skin color or they would use euphemisms like of good appearance and that was a euphemism a good appearance been light-skinned exactly yeah 
You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Porque mi tierra vida le da Pero llegará el día En que mi mano lo encontrará Cuando salí de Cuba Dejé mi vida, dejé mi amor We're back with Ada Ferrer, F-E-R-R-E-R Her latest book Cuba, an American history published by Scribner. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We just listened to one of uh, Cuba's great cultural exports, Celia Cruz. Uh, Yeah, beautiful uh, song, beautiful voice. In the years before the the revolution, um, things like the American mafia play a role in in Cuba. Um, How did Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciana wind up in Cuba? Yeah, it's a a fascinating story. So it it began really with prohibition. So, um, you know, when the U.S., uh, when the the sale and transportation of of alcoholic beverages became illegal in the U.S., uh, some started to to look to Cuba as a way around that law. And that was certainly true, not just for the mafia, but for regular, um, you know, ordinary American citizens who wanted to, you know, to travel there because they could drink and do all kinds of things. So uh, American tourism to Cuba skyrockets uh, as a result of, of, of prohibition and then, you know, the rise of, of um, air travel and, and so on. Now, the, the mafia used Cuba as a as for the transportation of alcoholic beverages, so they they came to rely on on Cuba during that period, and then, you know, to do that they also developed lucrative and and profitable and handy relationships with members of the Cuban government, mm. who were willing to work with them and provide visas and you know turn the other eye when they were bringing in narcotics and things like that. So. So really, Cuba became it was close to the U.S., so easy to get to. They could use it for the initially for the transport, uh, trans, uh, transshipment of, of, of alcohol. Then they used it for the transshipment of narcotics, which became a major uh, mob industry in the in the 40s and 50s and which relied on Cuba. Then they also used it for gambling and hotels. So Meyer Lansky had, you know, the won the commission from the government to run run a or the, or the government helped him win one of the commissions to run uh, a major uh, casino. They built hotels that to house all those American tourists. So, so they were very present in in Havana of the of the you know of the late mostly the forties, uh, the the forties and and fifties. Did that lead corruption in the government? That did lead to corruption in the government. I would say that I mean there was corruption before, mm. but it just it took it to a whole nother. Well, there's corruption level. in every government. So yes, we shouldn't Exa- be surprised. Exactly, exactly, and that 
that accelerated it. Um, you know, people who own the airlines would allow them to use their planes for the drug, you know, all, all kinds of, and, and some of those people were in the Senate and in Congress and the president's brother. And they, yes, they were, so there were figures who were very corrupt. Um, I don't want to, I mean, so that, so that is definitely true. What's also important to note though, is that there were Cuban citizens who were aware of that and tried to fight that. So there was a really powerful movement against corruption that, 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 you know, took place and that, and that grew in the late forties and, and, and early fifties. Didn't the U S government initially welcome the overthrow of the Batista regime? You know, welcome might be too strong a word, I think. So the U.S. supported Batista while he was in power. It withdrew its support at the very end uh, when it stopped sending uh, weapons. And also when they realized that Batista could just no longer keep the peace, that, you know, there were bombs exploding every night. Batista lost the support in the end of every one of the U.S., um, you know, from the U.S. government, of even of you know, sugarcane growers. He lost the support of the Catholic Church, uh, and so on. Right. So, so the Americans realized that there could be no peace with Batista in power. There could be no protection of American investments and American um, interest with Batista in power because there could be no peace with him. So, when when Batista is uh, leaves the island on December thirty first, nineteen fifty eight, and Fidel's rebels and other rebels come into um, Havana, they, they recognize, uh, and, and, a, and a, a president is named, they recognize that president and that government um, almost immediately. Now, Fidel had already had gone to prison in the mid-1950s. What, mm-hmm. what had he been sentenced for? Yeah, so in... So but Batista came to power. He was in power several times. Uh, and one time he was... Uh, you know, legitimately fairly elected in 1940. But in 1952, he was running for president, running third, uh, and came back from Florida and basically staged a, mil- uh, you know, uh, a, a military coup and took over the the country and became named himself, called himself president. So that was in March of 1952. Uh, many, many people spoke out against that, including Fidel Castro. What he, in 1953, he came up with a plan to attack the government by attacking the second largest military installation on the island. That was the Moncada, it was called the Moncada Barracks in, in Santiago. Moncada being the name of an, of an old Afro-Cuban general uh, from the Wars of Independence, who um, was no longer alive. But, um, so he attacked, the, he attacked the, the base and was defeated fairly in, in fairly short order. He escaped to the mountains, but was caught, you know, very quickly. And he was, and he was tried. And the trial was, the trial was where he gave one of his most famous speeches in his own defense at the sentencing. It's called the history will absolve me. And um, he was sentenced to 15 years, which he didn't serve because then he was pardoned and, and exiled. But that's what he went to jail for, he was for that attack. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1955, he was freed and allowed to freed on the condition that he leave the country and he went to Mexico. Now, uh, would we say that he was a communist at this time? 
You know, that's a, a, a question that always, always comes up in one way or another. Well, so, when, did he, when did he first identify the Cuban Revolution as socialist? In, in April 1961, as the Bay of Pigs invasion was unfolding. So, so, so fairly late. So, you know, Americans often talk about the communist revolution of 1959. It was not a communist revolution in 1959. Uh, and I say that emph emphatically. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is because um, many, many people supported the ouster of Batista. Uh, the Cuban Communist Party, which was called the Popular Socialist Party at the time, but the, the, it did not support um, Fidel Castro until very late, until well into 1958. Uh, individual communists might have supported Castro, but the Communist Party did not. It stood by uh, Batista for longer than people, and it had allied with Batista historically as well. Well, so, he, he came to the United States, didn't he, in April 1959? Fidel Castro, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But did he you was, get support he, from the American people? Absolutely. And they, did the American know, government think he was good? He was a positive force? Because he met, read, he met with Richard Nixon. He uh, met with Richard Nixon. And they say, you know, Nixon came out of the three-hour meeting exhausted. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but, you know, when he arrived... In New York, that was a major question. Is he a communist or is he not a communist? And what he would say always, he would, he would respond defensively. Why is everyone talking about communism? And he said this to, to, to Nixon. I'm not communist. I'm, you know, and he denied it vehemently um, in, in New York and back in Cuba for, for a long time. What he said was that he was a humanist, that this was a humanist revolution. It was neither communist nor, it was the, it was um, bread without terror, meaning so, so what he saw is, you know, you have bread. So everyone has bread. So you avoid the evils of capitalism without terror. So you avoid the evils of communism. So that was the, the kind of the, the language that he used for a long, long, a long, long time. And it, he didn't be. But, you know, I think by the question of when he became communist is one of those perennial questions mm -hmm. that everyone asks, and nobody knows the answer. Do you think we really. might, the United States might have pushed him into it? I think that's part of the story. I don't think it's the whole story, but the U.S. the U.S. miscalculated really badly in dealing with him at the very beginning, because I think they 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 were confronted with this revolution and with this kind of enigmatic, charismatic figure. And they immediately tried to understand it in terms of the Cold War. Will he be, will he remain with us or is he going to go to the other side? And that was the only way they could look at it. Uh, and what they failed to see was the, this long resentment against U.S. interventionism and U.S. power in Cuba. And they failed to understand the strength of Cuban nationalist sentiment, of Cuban kind of patriotic sentiment, of support, of, of, of really strong support for, for undiluted Cuban sovereignty. And so they didn't understand that. And uh, everything they did, it, it was easy for Castro to cast as a, as a, you know, as a violation of Cuban sovereignty. And that I think also helped Castro win support for his movement. There's a funny moment in the in his meeting with with Nixon during that visit, where 
Nixon recommends that Castro pursue the economic policies of the governor of Puerto Rico at the time. <laughs> and, you know, Castro looked at him incredulously and said, uh, the Cubans are very nationalist and they won't take kindly to being told to pursue policies in place in an American colony, you know, essentially. But I think, you know, Nixon didn't know what to make of that. And when they, you know, when the Cuban government, the revolutionary government initiated its agrarian reform in May of 1959, it was a moderate middle of the road kind of agrarian reform for the most part. There would be a more radical one later. But, um, you know, it was well within the mainstream thinking of, of, the, of institutions like the U.N. And, and so on. But when the U.S. had so much land and so much power in, in, in Cuba that it was almost inevitable that, that any kind of agrarian, agrarian reform would kind of butt up against U.S. interest, right? And when that happened, you had all these American, powerful American people say they are so ungrateful <laughs> we helped them win independence and look what they are doing to us now. We didn't win their independence for them to become communist. And again, that's it just reflects that deep misunderstanding about the way Cubans understood their own history. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Ada Ferrer whose latest book is Cuba and American History, published by Scribner. It's got lots of wonderful illustrations as well. Um, how much has your own life story been affected by this history? Weren't you born in the period between the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961, the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, while yeah. your father was in New York? Right, right. And you, yeah. you, you've even written in your prologue, uh, that this book is a product of more than 30 years of work and of a lifetime of shifting perspectives between the country where I was born and the country where I made my life. Right. Yeah. You know, on, on, on the one hand, the book is history. It's based on 30 years of archival and, and library research and a lot of thinking as a scholar and a historian about these issues. But I can't you know, it is a deeply, deeply personal story for me. I feel like, uh, you know, I am a product of the Cuban Revolution. My family's history is completely intertwined with the history of the Cuban, of the Cuban Revolution. So, as you said, you know, my mother and I came, and between the Bay of Pigs and the Missile Crisis, my father came, um, you know, about ten months before that. So he left when when my mother was pregnant with me. Um, I had a brother who my mother left behind uh, because his father, who was a revolutionary policeman, did not want his son to go to the U.S. because a good revolutionary would not let his son do that. So my mother left the son behind thinking they would be reunited soon. And that didn't happen until much, much later. And uh, I grew up in a place that was full of, of Cuban um, exiles and Cuban refugees, not in Miami, but in New Jersey, right across the river. It's a place called West New York. And it was a working class town. Most of the, my mother worked in a, in a, as a seamstress in a coat factory. And that's what most of the mothers of my friends did. And, you know, most people had not gone to college. Most of them had not even finished high school. Um, 
my mother lost or my my parents, neither of them lost property to the revolution because they didn't have any for the revolution to take. So, uh, yeah. And and Cuba was everywhere. We always had, you know, the drawer of clothes to send to relatives back home. The priest talked about political prisoners. We went to the procession for the patron saint, you know, all that. It was everywhere. And I thought I wanted to escape it. And then here in the end, I've, you know, devoted my life to understanding it instead. So, um well, you obviously, grew up, <laughs> you obviously grew up here because you don't speak with even a tinge of an accent. No, yeah. Uh, w- yeah. Let's talk about the San Isidro movement. W- yeah. What is it? Uh, and hasn't it led to protests in Cuba? Yeah, so um, the San Isidro movement has been around for a few years. It's mostly young people. Many of them are artists and musicians and, and writers or filmmakers. The movement is centered in... Um, in a, in a part of old Havana that is very poor, that is predominantly black. It's actually right near the Cuban National Archives where I did so much work. And, um, and they've basically, they've been pushing for, the, the, they started mobilizing a, a couple of years ago when the state enacted, this was under the new president Diaz-Canel, enacted a decree that limited the ability of people to present or perform or exhibit art of any kind without approval from the Ministry of Culture. Mm. That meant that there was no, there could be no art produced outside the confines of the state. It is the, you know, the most limiting, uh, closed kind of conception of culture probably in the history of, of the of the revolution. And so they pushed against that. They protested against that. They would do performance pieces in public to to challenge it and so on. So that's where uh, that's one set of origins is there. And they they had protests um, last November, some of them were um, arrested and harassed and others of them filmed it and then put it online and so on. And interestingly, uh, a day after that happened, or a couple days after that happened, I can't quite remember, a group of people showed up at the Ministry of Culture to protest uh, these these policies and also to call for, well, the, the liberation of some of the um, San Isidro uh, movement people who had been detained, and also to call for, just for dialogue, uh, they wanted to talk to the Minister of Culture and, and to others about their demands for more freedom of expression and, and so on. And it looked initially like that might happen. But then it was, you know, the president then came out in a rally a day or two later and said there will be no dialogue with you know terrorists and mercenaries, that kind of thing. And it shut it down. So there's been um, there's been no willingness really on the part of the government to engage them in any serious way. It dismisses them as enemies and terrorists and mercenaries so, and imperialists. So the, so the, the new government is, is also being repressive. Um, yes. Haven't Washington politics, Barack Obama's opening to the island, then Donald Trump's reversal of that policy and the election of Joe Biden made the relationship between Cuba and the United States a subject of debate once more? And yes. then, and then there's the whole matter of the U.S. presence on Guantanamo, which right. continues to be a source of tension. We don't have much time, but can you address those things quickly? 
Yeah, that well, yeah, that's a, a lot to address quickly. As I said, I was there. <laughs> I'm when sorry, Obama we just was, have two minutes. Yeah, <laughs> just a bit. I was there when Obama was there, and I've never seen uh, such a sense of hope among the Cuban people in my 30 years of being there as in that moment. They really thought that things would change after Obama opened. Then Trump came and reversed it all, for the sake of politics in Miami and Florida, not not because of any, um, you know political or ideological principle. And then everyone expected uh, Biden to go back to some level of, of Biden's policy. And he just he he hasn't. And I think Cubans have been disappointed with that. And um, yes, that was that's that's very quick. I don't know if you want me to say more. Well, I'm just wondering whether what you see happening in the future, uh, because if the government is still being a bit repressive, isn't shouldn't that be a, a matter of concern in the United States? It should be a matter of concern, but uh, it's unclear that the U.S. can solve that problem. I think that, you know, Cubans want to solve that problem and they don't want Americans to get in the way. So if Americans start talking about liberation and sending, you know, in, you know, uh, an expedition or anything like that, that's the worst possible talk that the Americans can engage in. So they should. Yeah. Well, I just have to end it there, unfortunately. Yes. Ada Ferrer is Julia Silver, Professor of History in Latin American and Caribbean History at New York University. Her latest book is Cuba and American History, published by Scribner. And it's been a great pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for being Same on the show. Same here. Thanks for having me. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Todd McGovern for preparing today's interview and to live engineer Reggie Johnson and to Leonard Lopez at large executive producer Jesse Lent for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If you would like to hear more, you can access our over 500 past interviews at WBAI.org. And we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else that podcasts are available. If you want to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support this station. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a, a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online right now to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. To keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been severely challenged by this pandemic. And due to all of that instability, a lot of our longtime supporters have had to drop their support, which is we, why we're asking anyone who is able to, in this time of crisis, to step up and make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio and Leonard Lopate at large on the air and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Becoming a sustaining member of this station, which is 100% supported by our listeners, but sustaining members we call BAI buddies, and, and that's a particularly great way to support BAI without having to shell out a lot of money at any one time. Uh, if And you can become a BAI buddy or make a contribution at any amount. We don't have limits. By going to the website online, give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. To everyone who's already supporting this station in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, at whatever level you're doing it, thank you so much. And I hope you can join us again on Monday when Elsa Pancharoli, the Leverhulme Early Career Research Fellow at the Oxford University Museum of Natural History, will discuss her fascinating new book, 
Beasts Before Us, the untold story of mammal origins and evolution. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday.